0: Also, you're going to get the soft-spoken version of Pastor Paul today because I have to sing this afternoon, and my voice is very delicate right now. So, it's going to be kind of mellow, like a late-night DJ kind of sermon. But I, I think um, I think you'll be able to probably follow along here. Uh, you can you can start out by turning in your Bibles to Philippians chapter two, and we will be in that chapter eventually. And uh, but beginning before we get there, I want to ask you. Uh, kind of painful question. Um, How many of you adults out there remember middle school? Kind of, right? Yeah. Um, Let me ask a follow-up question. For how many of you was it the favorite season of your whole life? (laughs) Not a single hand. Imagine that. So, um, middle schoolers, it only gets better from here. You you need to know that. Uh, One of my most piercing memories from middle school was from seventh grade when I decided to ask out the most popular girl in school. Um, back then in the in the late 70s, it, it was all the rage to be, you know, going out with someone. And so um, this, this girl, Debbie, um, she sat next to me in math class, and, and she must have been in between boyfriends or something like that. And so I decided I was going to have a go at it. And um, <clears throat> Debbie, as I have mentioned, was she was at the very top of the social food chain. I mean, she was right there at the pinnacle. Uh, I, on the other hand, I was good at math, Um, which you'd think would be good for something, you know, but in seventh grade, not so much. Um, One day, I I I gathered up my courage, and um, with the sweat beating down my face, uh, I asked her to go out with me. And as you might expect, she, she thought it would be a really good idea if we could just continue to be... Really good friends, and um, you know, in my pathetic state, I probably thought of that as a win. Um, But but although she was very nice about it, it it was not long before it got around to the whole seventh grade that Titus had been turned down. And what in the world was he thinking anyway that he would ever do something like that? And now the reason that that memory is so deeply ingrained in my brain, even you know, forty four years later or whatever it's been, that it involves a very powerful emotion, and that emotion is called shame and shame when we experience it pretty much always leaves a mark and if you want an example of what the sociologists call an honor shame culture an honor shame culture you need look no further than your local middle school because that is what that is there that is a place where your status in the community is everything where there's a definite pecking order, where, where you are always being reminded of your reputation and the reputation of the crowd that you're hanging with, and, and you're always being reminded of where you stand in the eyes of others. It can be a very difficult time. For a lot of young people, it's a brutal experience. But we know today that it's not just middle school, right? I hope you know that. that, that it's, over, it's all over our culture today, honor and shame. Look at the sports world. Have you noticed in the sports world lately, it's not enough just to win the game, you have to embarrass your opponent? You have to strike a pose after you score the touchdown or sack the quarterback. You have to get in your opponent's face and talk trash. And if somebody disrespects you, you are almost obligated to push them back or to start a fight. And it used to be just the men, right, the testosterone-laced guys out there that were getting into these, these contests. But there was a particularly nasty example of this a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, actually, in women's college basketball. Everyone's getting in on the act now. Our culture is very attuned these days to honor and shame. Shaming, that's a verb now, right? Shaming someone for their lifestyle or for their appearance or for any other conceivable reason, that is, that is one of the mortal sins in America today. You don't shame people. Now, closer to home, you know, there, there are times we feel A little bit of shame, sometimes even in silly situations. This happens a lot online, I think, to people. You ever feel a little bit of shame if you slip up and and say something really stupid on social media and you can't take it back, but you wish that you could, and now it's out there for everybody to see? Or maybe if you're you're just scrolling down your Facebook feed and and you're thinking about your life and you're seeing all the wonderful things that are happening in the lives of all the other people some of whom you barely know if you admit it to yourself, and as they're celebrating all these blessings and you wish you had all those friends, you had it all together as much as they seem to and that your kids were getting straight A's and winning all the championships like they are. And if you ever got out there and shared what was really going on in your life and the life of your own family, it wouldn't be so impressive. And what would people think of you? Now, that may seem kind of silly to some of you, but it's very real. And, and beyond those even minor things, there are a lot of people who deal with really serious shame. Shame over bad decisions in their past that are still affecting their present and their future. Shame over something that's going on with a family member or maybe with the whole family in general. Shame over their appearance. Shame over their income level. Shame over needing to ask for help from other people all the time. And, and for some people, it's, it's shame that comes not from something they've done, but something that's been done to them maybe by through some kind of slander or even some kind of, of abuse of some form. And some of you know how that feels. What is shame? What is shame? We talked about this in detail about a year ago. We did a whole series on understanding our emotions. And back then, last May I think it was, we found out that shame is the feeling that comes from being lowered or, or degraded, from experiencing a loss of status or respect in the eyes of someone whose opinion you care about. Shame is the feeling that comes from being lowered or degraded, experiencing a loss of status or respect in the eyes of someone whose opinion really matters to you. That's shame. But as intense as the feeling of shame is, and we all know what it's like to feel shame, it's more than just an emotion. We found this out as well when we studied this. Shame is also an objective reality. Often we really do lose respect in the eyes of others, whether we know it or not. And whether that shame is a result of something we've done or something that's been done to us, there's there's usually not an obvious way out of it. There's very little we can do about shame to fix it. We also discovered back then, and we need to be reminded of it now, that shame often goes hand in hand with another emotion and another experience called guilt. Guilt. Sometimes when we do something sinful, we experience not only guilt but shame as well, and, and, and we should feel shame sometimes, right? I mean, because sometimes we do shameful things, and the emotion of shame is an alarm that goes off, and God gave it to us for a reason, because to be shameless is a bad thing. But shame, although it is useful in certain circumstances, needs to be dealt with. And if our shame is left alone, it can destroy us because, in a way, shame is even more personal and, in some ways, even more powerful than guilt because guilt has to do with something we've done, whereas shame has to do with who we are. So, when you have guilt, you're saying, Oh no, what did I do? When you have shame, you're thinking, What's become of me? Who am I? What's wrong with me? Because shame makes us want to hide it keeps us from relating to others it keeps us from reaching out to others it keeps us from walking in freedom with our god because so often when we have shame we feel that we are worthless and we feel that we're worthless even after god has forgiven us this happens to christians too it happens a lot to christians in fact one of the greatest sources of shame for christians is when we think about how many times we've failed god even after our conversion to christ right we're not supposed to be like that anymore How could you even call yourself a child of God after acting like that after Jesus saved you? Shameful feeling. In fact, we often feel the emotion of shame before we even get to the guilt, right? Because shame is that powerful. That's what happened with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When they sinned, the first thing that happened was they had this shame at their nakedness and it seems to have kicked in even before they felt the guilt of having disobeyed God. Shame is that powerful. But, We're going to look at some good news here, good news as in the gospel. And as we look at the gospel, the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us, guilt often takes center stage, right? And it should. It should. Remember, the heart of the gospel is how Jesus assumed our guilt for what we have done, and He was judged in our place, dying for us on the cross to take away our sin. But for some of you who are here this morning and you're dealing with shame, you need to know this, that very close to the heart of the gospel and intimately connected with it is the truth that Jesus on the cross not only did something about our guilt, He did something about our shame as well. And that is the angle from which I want to look at the gospel this morning. And we're going to read a very famous passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. We could have gone to a lot of different places. A year ago, and we talked for two weeks about shame, um, we used the, pro- the parable of the prodigal son, which is a very important honor shame story. You can go back and read that. Uh, it might help. But, but I want to do this passage from Philippians today. In fact, let's start not in, in verse 5, but let's go back and start at verse 3. Paul writing to the church at Philippi, he says this starting in 2 3 Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this is obviously a very foundational passage for understanding what we call the incarnation, right? What it it means for Jesus to have become a true human being. And the theologians have puzzled for centuries over the language in verse 7 and the question of what exactly it was that Jesus emptied Himself of, and that word emptied in verse 7. He certainly did not empty Himself of His divinity. When Jesus was a man and still is a man, Jesus is still God and always was. He never stopped being God. People have, had, there have been other different options that are proposed about losing certain aspects of his divinity or the independent exercise of divine attributes, and there, there are all sorts of theories like that. Um, but, and I've been back and forth on this myself several times, but I've come to the conclusion, given the context here, that this is one place where the King James Version of the Bible gets it exactly right. When it translates this as, Jesus made himself of no reputation made himself of no reputation because what Jesus definitely gave up was his glory. He gave up what he called in John 17, 5, the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. Jesus gave it up. He gave up his glory. He gave up his place of honor at God's right hand. He gave up his dignity, at least in the eyes of others. He gave up his reputation when he became a human being, and in doing so, He took on our shame. He took on our shame. Why do I say that? Well, human beings in the grand scheme of things in the universe had incurred a lot of shame. We had not just the feeling of shame, which sometimes we have and sometimes we don't. We had the reality. Think about it. We were made in the very image of God. We were put into a perfect and beautiful environment. We were given tremendous privilege and authority. God basically made us the vice presidents over creation. Psalm 8 says we were crowned with glory and honor. And what did we do with all this privilege and glory? We threw it away for a piece of fruit because we couldn't stand the indignity of not being able to be our own God now. How shameful is that? How shameful is that? What must the angels have thought of us? How could God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, in His right mind ever associate with us, let alone become one of us? That was infinitely below His status and His rank. How shameful that Jesus would become one of us And incur our reputation and our shame and our position and our baggage, but he didn't stop there. He went farther. He allowed the world of humans to despise him, to reject him, to disrespect him in every conceivable way. He was mocked, he was publicly beaten, he was openly ridiculed, he was stripped naked and left to hang that way for hours on a cross in full view of everyone until He died, and He died the disgraceful death of a criminal who foolishly pretended to be a king wearing a crown of thorns, His shame broadcast to the whole world with no one to clear His name, no one to speak up for Him, and even His heavenly Father forsaking Him and looking in the other direction. Jesus identified with us in all of our shame and then some. He was brought to the absolute lowest place ever. He knows what it's like to experience deep shame. But, then comes verse 9. How does verse 9 start? Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. These words describe the opposite of shame. Shame which is honor. Honor. But did you notice they connect the honor to the shame? That's what the therefore is there for. Because Jesus partook of our shame, He was honored with the name that is above every name. It seems that somehow Jesus' willingness to take our shame and humiliation upon Himself made Him even more worthy of glory. Isn't that strange? His willingness to humble and abase himself and take all that shame upon himself made him even more worthy of being glorified and praised. But then, did you notice how the passage started, folks? Have this attitude among yourselves. Let this mind be in you. You know, sometimes the Word of God presents Jesus in a way that pretty much all we can do is worship Him. Other times, the Bible presents Jesus in a way that we're supposed to follow his example. And incredibly, this is one of those times. Somehow, we're supposed to have the same attitudes in ourselves and among ourselves that Jesus did when he became a man and went to the cross. We're supposed to be willing to take the lowest place to honor people above ourselves, to not always have the last word, to live with disrespect and misunderstandings, to take no account of our own reputation, to sometimes leave people thinking what in the world is wrong with us and not be able to correct them, to be willing to undergo shame if that's what it takes to follow Jesus. Those of you who have been in the... um, what we call the CMA DNA class, that the new members or the newcomers class, uh, probably remember the testimony one day that you saw in the video of Dr. David Thompson. Um, he's an Alliance International worker and a medical doctor, and um, he is he kind of gives his testimony some on the video, and he recounts his decision to become a medical missionary, and he talks about how back in those days, when he graduated from medical school, and it's probably still true today, that if you graduate from med school and you decide to go into medical missions. The other new doctors will assume that you just didn't have what it took to be a doctor in a competitive place like the United States. But you'd do fine in a place like Africa. But Dr. Thompson was willing to live with that shame in order to follow Jesus. I deal with this a little bit myself. Honestly, I grew up in a very affluent secular place and I went to a very high-powered high school and I have no doubt that a good number of my old classmates think that I have wasted my life and squandered my potential by becoming of all things a pastor. Isn't it a shame what happened to Paul? Does that bother me? It bothers me less and less every year. Now, That's obviously not a whole bunch of shame. Those are pretty minor examples, and they're almost not worth mentioning in that there are believers around this world who have absolutely no status in society, no privileges, no honor, specifically because they have chosen to follow Jesus Christ and they will not turn their backs on Him. Many of our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church are forced to take the lowest positions and fill the most menial and degrading and disgusting jobs in society. They're the ones that push the open sewage along in the streets to make sure it doesn't get clogged up on the way through the town, if they're allowed to make a living at all. And in doing this, they're identifying with their Lord Jesus, who preached, you may remember, a silent sermon one night by taking off His outer garments, taking a towel, putting it around His waist, taking a basin of water and kneeling down to do the most meaningful and degrading task that a servant would do, washing his disciples' feet. But these persecuted believers are not ashamed of their Lord. So, let me ask you this question. Do you think, do you think, ask all of us, including myself, this question, do you think you'd be willing to undergo shame, shame, For the sake of Jesus, even in small ways, to give up honor or credit to somebody else when you know that you deserve it more than they do. To obey the rules and play every kid on the team, even if it means losing the playoff game. To go to people of a lesser status than you, people the world looks down on, and not just support them, but to befriend them as equals, and in that way to bestow honor upon people who have been living in many cases. With shame? Will you risk embarrassment by speaking out about your faith in Jesus around people that might consider that to be in bad taste? Would you perhaps even give up a position of honor or maybe even something like a promotion at work to prioritize Jesus over career advancement by obeying him in some way if he calls you to do that? These things can be tough, and you might ask, how in the world am I supposed to do that? How in the world do I make those decisions? Where am I supposed to get something from the inside of me to make that decision? Where's the motivation other than to be more like Jesus, which if you think about it, that's probably a pretty good motivation by itself. But let me just give you a couple other observations along these lines, okay? Did you know that just as with Jesus in the case of Philippians 2, the Bible says that your willingness to lower yourself in this life is actually connected to the honor that you will receive in the future? often in this life and definitely in the next. In Luke, Jesus says, he who humbles himself will be exalted. In James and in Peter, it says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Jesus tells us to take the lowest place at the banquet. Why? So the host can move us up to a place of honor. If we endure suffering, Paul tells Timothy, which certainly includes enduring shame, we will reign with him. Reign with him. On the other hand, If we deny him, he will deny us, Paul says. In other words, to the extent that we identify with Jesus in his shame, he will share with us the honor that he is entitled to. To the extent that we identify with Jesus in his shame, he will one day share with us the honor that he gets. Hebrews 13 reminds us that Calvary, Calvary, which is that hill on which Jesus suffered on the cross, was outside the city limits of Jerusalem. It was outside the gates of the city. Like like the Old Testament scapegoat in Leviticus, Jesus was driven away from the fellowship of the people, bearing not just their sin, but also their reproach, their shame. Their shame. And then the author of Hebrews tells us this, since Jesus suffered outside the city, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. You see, the heavenly city where we're headed one day, if we're believers in Jesus and for which we were designed, that city does not honor people for the same things that we get honored for here. To be an insider in the heavenly city is so often to be an outsider here and vice versa. The values are a lot different. And part of being willing to go through shame for Jesus is remembering the honor that we will one day receive in the heavenly city. That will help us to get through the shame. And in fact, by taking away our sin and our shame on the cross, Jesus has already brought us to a place of honor it says in Ephesians 2.6 that we are currently seated with Him in the heavenly realms. That's a pretty high honor. So we now have an, even, an honor that is even greater than anything we could ever even hope to achieve on earth. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are part of God's family. You're part of the royal family. Amen. You're children of the King. And although God's family is currently, for the most part, being dishonored on earth right now, that will not be the case forever. Heaven is a place of glory and honor, but that may not be the only motivation for us. I think there's a different one and maybe even a better one. You see, I'm sure that in emptying himself of his glory and going through the shame that Jesus went through on earth, I am sure that he was looking forward to the future glory. He was looking forward to the future honor that he would receive, the greater glory that he would one day get. But Jesus had something else on His mind as well. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that for the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. For the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. The joy set before Him. I wonder what that was. Because whatever the joy set before Jesus was, it turned out to be more powerful than shame. Well, you say shame is a pretty powerful emotion. What could possibly be more powerful than that? Let me give you a hint. Have you ever been around an engaged couple or maybe a newly married couple or or one of those couples that that is in that season where they're just crazy in love with one another? Do you know that experience? When, when people are in that condition, they, they might tend toward rather embarrassing displays of public affection, right? And sometimes they will say to each other things that are downright cringy to normal people like us. Why is that, do you think? Why would they be so shameless? You know why? It's because they're like Buddy the Elf at the end of that Christmas movie when he goes into that boardroom and he goes, I'm in love and I'm in love and I don't care who knows it. They're so in love that shame isn't even on their radar. That must be pretty powerful then, right? So here's the question. What was Jesus getting for himself on the cross? Do you have any idea? You know what he was getting? He was getting a bride. He was getting a bride, and He was dying for her to make her perfect because He knew that one day she was going to walk down the aisle toward Him, and she was going to have to be utterly beautiful and spotless. You see, that shame was nothing compared to the love and the anticipation that Jesus had for us in His heart. Amen. I came across a rather striking quote from Jonathan Edwards a couple of weeks ago in a book I was, I was reading. Edwards, you've probably heard that name, he's, he's probably the greatest theologian in American history and a very profound thinker, a genius really. Well, wouldn't you like to know what the genius Jonathan Edwards said about why God created the world in the first place? That might be worth hearing, right? Here's why Jonathan Edwards said God created the world. He said this, the creation of the world seems to have been, especially for this end, meaning for this purpose, that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love, and grace that was in his heart and that in this way God might be glorified. Now, that's fancy Jonathan Edwards' language. What he's saying is this, that from eternity past, there was Father, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And the Father wanted the Son to have a wife. And so God went through all the trouble of creating this whole world for us, putting us there, seeing us fall into sin and disgrace, and then redeeming us at infinite cost to Himself, all so that Jesus could pour His love out on us forever. That's why God created the world. And one day the congregation of all the angels of heaven will be in attendance in the most spectacular wedding venue ever created, excitedly waiting for the Son of God to receive His bride. The Holy Spirit will then say, Please rise. And the host of heaven will stand in our honor as you and I, the bride of Christ, walk down the aisle toward our Savior, and we will not be ashamed, Aimed to return his gaze because in that day, John says, we will be like him. Amen. Not like him in his deity, but like him in his holiness. Amen. And I don't know exactly what all of that means. I know that it means more than I think it means, but John didn't know either, actually. So he, he said this He said, What we will be has not yet been made known. There's more than we think. But I know enough to ask you this, thinking about the honor and the glory and the unrestrained love of that moment that will one day come to pass for all of us who trust in Christ, does that not melt away all the shame you ever felt? Because that's not only the joy set before Him, that's also the joy set before you if you're in Christ Jesus. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what kind of shame you're carrying. I don't know what fears you have when it comes to identifying with Jesus and in His shame and in His suffering. But I do know this, being part of the family of the eternal Father and being the bride of the eternal Son of God is nothing to be ashamed of. Let's pray.